we've got one of those vilified open office environments everybody reads about, right? right. Fast Company magazine called it an idea born in the mind of Satan in the deepest caverns of hell, <laughs> right? And there's books written, there's articles come out every month to say these environments do not work. Everybody around the world sends it to me. They're like, Rich, this doesn't work, this thing you do at Menlo. And yet they're confounded by it because they know it does work for us and they wonder why. Welcome to 360 Real Time, a Steelcase podcast with behind-the-scenes conversations on the research impacting the places where people work, learn, and heal. I'm your host, Rebecca Charbowski. Today, I'm speaking with Rich Sheridan, CEO, Chief Storyteller, and co-founder of Menlo Innovations. Menlo is a software design and development firm based in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And companies don't just partner with Menlo to do work. They visit by the thousands every year to learn how they work. Sheridan's book, Joy, Inc., How We Built a Workplace People Love, helped him share his team's unique style and radical transparency with the world. Rich, thanks for being here to share some of your joy with us. It's a pleasure to be here. I'd love to start by talking about your mission. On your website, it says, to end human suffering in the world as it relates to technology. That's big. Can you tell us where that comes from? Well, a lot of people, when they talk about mission statements, they say, pick a North Star and uh, and believe you will never get there. So we picked that big, hairy, audacious goal to end human suffering in the world as it relates to technology because it was fundamentally in our hearts to do what we call returning joy to technology. And what we saw in our own careers, our, uh, my co-founder and I, was that there was just too much suffering. Uh, Suffering for the people who pay for software to be built and they never see the results they were hoping for, maybe no results at all. Uh, Suffering for the people one day use the software that gets built and they get frustrated by it. And suffering for the people who actually do the work. And we wanted to take aim at all three of those areas and that became a very broad-based mission that we now refer to generally as the business value of joy. So we've been, as you know, here at Steelcase, doing a lot of exploration around Agile. Do you describe your teams as Agile? You know, it's it's seldom that we use the word Agile at Menlo. It's not like we're trying to avoid it. We just don't sense the need to talk about that. We talk about joy. We literally open up many of our tours saying, welcome to Menlo. You've come to a place that has intentionally created a culture focused on the business value of joy. And we find by opening up the conversation in that way, we're reminding people why they're pursuing any of these kind of changes. What were they trying to accomplish? You know, it... it If you just say, well, you know, if somebody came to us and said, we want to learn about you, uh, we want to learn about Agile, we want to be Agile, our question is, great, what problem are you trying to solve? And if their problem is, well, we just want to be Agile, that's not actually a problem. That's a potential solution to a set of problems, and we agree that some of the practices of Agile can solve some really big problems, but we didn't want to end there. So we tend ourselves not to use the word agile very much in a tour. We talk about a system, a structure, and a process that allow us to systematically get to the kind of joy we want to deliver to the world, the tools of agile and the tools of lean, the tools of design thinking. Uh, We do them because we want to get to joy. So would you say for organizations out there that have principles of design thinking or of lean or Six Sigma, that there are principles within there that they can apply to Agile, that they don't have to necessarily stop down, retrain, start over? I mean, I think there's sort of, there might be this fear of 
we can't do that. It's too big. How would you sort of counsel, I guess, those organizations? If you start taking some of the very popular methodologies and philosophies out there like lean, agile, scrum, design thinking, and you start really boiling them down, you find out there's some really common elements amongst all of them. And so if you're doing any of those things well, not just necessarily scripted, wrote by the book and think you're doing everything correctly, but really doing them with that sense of purpose. Why are we doing this? Why did we choose to do these things? Again, back to our two central questions, mm-hmm. who do we serve and what would delight look like for them? I think you'll find that any one of those practices will get you to that kind of goal. What we would look for, for example, if someone was telling us they were doing one of these things is, are you getting out of the office? In particular with design thinking, are you sitting in a room using design thinking? Or are you actually going out into the world observing people in their native environment, not interviewing, not focus groups, not what we call dominant personality disorder (laughs) groups, but rather literally going out and empathizing with the people you intend to serve, honoring them for who they are, where they are, what they know, rather than trying to lower our knowledge and information over them with what we know about our industry. We are the industry that gave you, of course, if you want to shut down your computer, please press the start button. That's intuitive, (laughs) right? Or the ever-intuitive Control-Alt-Delete. You know, all of those things tell us that if we stay in a whiteboarded conference room and try and imagine what the users need, we're probably going to miss the mark. So we look for some really fundamental basic elements of what people are doing in their practices and getting out of the office and studying people in their native environment is a big one when it comes to, quote unquote, gathering requirements. So um, that seems like a good segue for you to ask you this question. What do you see as the biggest barrier to adopting Agile? When, when companies come to you and say, we want to be more Agile, um, what stops them from yeah, getting that? You might imagine when people come say it to us, we'll ask them back again, what problem are you trying to solve? Right? And the yep. problem isn't we want to be more Agile. Uh, the, one of the biggest challenges to changing the behaviors of any human team not just to move to Agile, but any kind of change, is the existing reward systems for that team. Uh, Sometimes some of the rewards we hang on to the tightest are what I call pain-filled reward systems. Uh, A simple one is uh, you go home tonight. If it wasn't snowing out, you might end up talking over the fence to your neighbor next door, and they ask you how you're doing. And your answer is, um, oh, I'm so busy. (laughs) Oh, I'm tired. I, I went in early. I stayed late. I've been working so hard. I actually worked through the weekend. And that sounds pain-filled, but the underlying message is actually a reward for you. Because what are you really saying to your next-door neighbor? I'm super important. I am so – they can't live without me. <laughs> I, I mean, I can't even believe that, uh, you know – I mean, they're barely living with me now, but, <laughs> but if I just backed off a little bit, they'd probably fail, right? I am so important, right? That's a reward. And in order to get to agility, you have to start playing with those rewards, potentially taking some of them away, even the pain-filled ones. And the way I describe it is – And you simultaneously have to replace them with rewards of equal or greater value as quickly as possible, or people will change in name only. Yep, I'm behind you, boss. 500 yards behind you, but I'm behind you. Keep going. And as soon as somebody falters, as soon as somebody, uh, as soon as there's a little hitch, boom, back to the way we always did things. That's probably one of the most important things for leadership to focus on is, Where do our rewards 
there's a great uh, company out in uh, Vital, uh, Vital Smarts in Salt Lake City that talks about the fact that the results you are seeing are created by the behaviors that you allow in your current system. In other words, your system is perfectly designed to produce the behaviors and the results you are currently seeing. And in order to change that system, you're going to mess with some existing rewards. And the ones we see that often confound change are the rewards for individual achievement over collaborative team-based achievement. I think the Agile community, the Lean community, and others are much more focused on team achievement right. than they are in individual achievement. Yeah. And yet almost every traditional HR practice, think of your annual performance review, mm -hmm. you want to get that exceeds expectation. And the only way you get exceeds expectation is if you look better than 85% of your teammates, mm -hmm. right? And so you have to make yourself look better than them. Well, that's not actually teamwork. Mm-hmm. So tell us about the radical transparency that you have at Menlo, because the first time you told me about this, it kind of blew my mind. Yeah, there are many things we do that are radically <laughs> transparent at Menlo. So we, this rabbit hole can go pretty deep. Uh, so number one, uh, one wide open office. There are no walls, offices, cubes, or doors. I sit at the same five-foot table as everyone else, and I'm out in the middle of the room with everyone else. There is no gifted C-suite for the CEO, but we're all, we're all out in the room together working shoulder to shoulder in the same room. Uh, intriguingly, my desk, my table is where the team puts it. I don't even get to choose where I sit. So they will move me around. I'm pretty sure this very day they are moving my table while I'm with you. And I'm going to go back to the office tomorrow and my table will be in a different place. They kind of warned me about that, which is actually unusual. Uh, but they'll move me because they think I should be somewhere else in the team. So they're uh, empowered to reconfigure their space at will. Yep. Yeah. Cool. Uh, yeah, That's so they're, the team is in charge of the space. They form the space. Now, could I uh, assert that I would really like my table to be there? Sure. I don't actually care where I sit. And it's more important for me that I'm where the team thinks I can provide the most value. At least that's the story I'm playing in my head. Mm -hmm. Maybe they're putting me where I can create the least amount of damage. I don't know. <laughs> uh, they haven't put me on the other side of the glass door yet. But uh, So we're all out in the room together. All of our work processes are exposed visually on the walls. So we know what everybody's working on. We know when they're working on it. We know what their status is on it. And that's not a uh, sort of micromanaging kind of thing. That, that transparency lends itself to safety. Mm -hmm. uh, because if everything is exposed, then everybody knows what the status is of everything. If somebody's behind, they can't hide it. We don't want to hide it. Mm -hmm. Fear tends to make bad news go into hiding, and we can't manage it any longer. Um, we are transparent with our financials. So we actually do open book financials. The whole team knows exactly what the financial condition of the company is, where the revenue is, cash in, cash out, profits, profit sharing, uh, bonus pool, all that kind of stuff. Uh, we are also transparent. This freaks people out. Uh, everyone at Menlo knows what everybody's pay level is exact pay level within wow. the organization. Yeah. <laughs> that's a wow for yeah, sure. Yeah, that's, uh, I've had people go, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. <laughs> right? They're freaking out like, yeah, 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 huh? You know, because our, our fundamental belief is, in terms of openness and transparency, whenever we don't share information as leaders with our teams, they make stuff up. Mm. My mm. history tells me I've never watched a human team make up a better story than the actual story. They always make up something worse. <laughs> right. right. 
It's like, oh my gosh, they're not telling us anything. We must be going out of business. We must be going bankrupt. There must be, you know, it's like, you know, settle down. It's not as bad as you think. So we just keep it all out there. Now, that requires, I mean, that, that, uh, I would not recommend to any of your listeners that they do that tomorrow. Right. Because um, with that sharing of information comes some great responsibility, some understanding, some maturity that says, okay, things might be bad right now, but when when were they bad like this in the past and did they get good again? Because the goal is not to create fear, right? That's not the, that's not the purpose. It's certainly not artificial fear. Now, do I want the team fearing we're going to go to business and that's why I want to share the numbers? Of course I do. Making payroll is really important to all of them, too. And so uh, by sharing the financials, you get that camaraderie of how do we work on this together rather than how are the heroic owners of the company going to save us this time? (laughs) And so there's a number of things we do. Uh, We do a daily stand-up every day. Everybody on the team gathers in the stand-up. Even if we have visitors, they come in. Obviously, there's a level of transparency because we have the thousands of visitors who come through every uh, year to see how we work and they're milling about in the space seeing the team Uh, so there are many many things we do to be very open and transparent so I know it's important to you that your teams work together um, but also that when they're not at work they're not at work so how do you manage that yeah, we put a lot of emphasis on co-location. We work together. Uh, we believe that's the best way to build relationships among our team members, and we believe those relationships build trust and lead to teamwork, collaboration, uh, all the things people want from their human teams. So we have this one big open office, as I described. The doors open about 8 o'clock in the morning, hmm. and they close about 6 o'clock at night. Usually by around 6, the place is dark and locked. Now, Whatever time you get in, whatever time you leave, when you touch that door handle on the way out the door to go home, you are done working. There is no expectation, there's no mechanisms to, uh, quote unquote, connect back into the office to do work. I, there's no email on my phone. There's no... Oh, you could you could have email. But what's interesting is intra-company communication, communication inside the company typically isn't being done with email. We use what we like to call high-speed voice technology Oh, we, you talk to each other? We talk to in each person? other. It's, yeah, I know, face-to-face, in real time. It's amazing. <laughs> uh, the hardware was pre-installed at birth, you know, vocal cords, tympanic membranes. You mean you don't have to wait for someone to receive an email, somehow get to actually reading the email, right. take the time to respond to the email, and then try to solve a problem? You right. just You just solve a problem yep. right, I might say, right away? Hey, Emily, can you send me a receivables report? Uh, print went out for me. Uh, it's amazing how well the high-speed voice technology works. <laughs> I love it. Uh, we can call an all-company meeting in our big open room just by calling out, Hey, Menlo. <laughs> and everybody will say, Hey, Rich. And the whole place goes quiet and nobody moves and we are now in an all-company meeting. No CC all email, no book the conference room, no coordination of calendars, no 10-minute meeting dance before the all-company meeting. Hey, Menlo. Hey, Rich. Place goes quiet. Conduct the business of the meeting. Say thank you. Back to work. Usually our all-company meetings last about 7 to 15 seconds. Wow. So this idea of work when you're at work, don't work when you're home, is literally a way to preserve the human energy of our team. People get burned out if they work too much. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in the companies who say, for example, um, So we're going to give you a cell phone. We're going to give you this cloud-based email service uh, so you can work from anywhere. And what they're really saying is we expect you to be available 24-7. If I text you at 3 o'clock in the morning, I expect you to answer. We don't have anything like that. 
So uh, you mentioned your physical environment, this big open space, that leaders are out there on the floor with team members, that team members can move their space around. Um, How important is it for you to have a physical environment that helps you manifest this agile culture that your, your team lives in? You know, I think the quote is attributed to Churchill, but I don't know if it's actually where it came from, where he said, uh, first we shape our buildings and our buildings shape us. Uh, Our physical spaces are of incredible importance for what we're trying to accomplish as a team. And so for us, when people come visit and they walk in our door and it's this this big open room, it's 25,000 square feet, just this cavernous space and I can hear their voices early on as they walk in the room they can feel the human energy of our team and I get this kind of wow and then they look and they realize we've got one of those vilified open office environments everybody reads about right Right. fast company magazine called it an idea born in the mind of satan in the deepest caverns of hell (laughs) right and there's books written there's articles come out every month to say these environments do not work i I tell you if any of your listeners want those articles want those books want the supporting data from the psychologists say this doesn't work just write me i will i've got it all because everybody around the world sends it to me they're like rich this doesn't work this thing you do at menlo and yet they're confounded by it because they know it does work for us and they wonder why and i told them very simply we didn't build an open and collaborative workspace we built an open and collaborative culture our workspace is a reflection of our deepest held cultural beliefs of openness, of transparency, of collaboration, of teamwork, of communication. Our workspace supports all of those things, so that's why we do it. We didn't move to an open and collaborative office because we read an article that says that's the coolest thing to do. We did it because it gets us back to joy. And so I believe that all such moves of any kind of space changes should start first with the cultural intentions you intend to pursue, and then it starts to manifest itself in the physical space. But there is no question that the space itself changes the team in fundamentally important ways. Can you tell us about more of the, just the physical things that you have that you guys use on a regular basis? I know you do a lot of analog, you know, storyboarding, essentially. Do you have digital displays? Do you have desks that move? Like, can you just kind of walk us through the space? Yep. So we intentionally bought uh, tables, simple tables that are lightweight. So anyone on the team by themselves can move this five foot by two and a half foot table. And the nice thing about a table that's twice as wide as it is deep is it gives you the opportunity to create some interesting physical shapes of putting tables together. Uh, For all the years of our existence, the team has chosen to push the table side to side and front to front. They want to be in close proximity. They want to be within eye shot and ear shot of one another. So the project teams form these tables together. So if there's 12 people on a team, we work in pairs. So we work two to a computer, two to a five-foot table. Uh, You'll see six tables there with Mm -hmm. 12 people at them. And then there will be just 10, 20 feet away, there'll be another pot of tables with maybe eight people at them working on that project. So that's where the space is constantly shifting. The uh, vertical 
surfaces. Mm -hmm. The walls, we're in the basement of a parking structure, so there's these massive pillars that hold up seven stories of parking structure above us. Every one of those is covered with some kind of push-pinnable material so that we can hang our physical artifacts. The high spaces that we can't get to that often are filled with inspirational posters of our own creation to remind us some of our deepest held core beliefs as a team. We'll use stand-up desks because the team likes some of mm-hmm. the team likes to do that. So we mm-hmm. have these kind of desks that you can choose whether you want to do uh, sitting or standing. We have books galore. So we have bookshelves all over the place. Uh, we don't have a book check-in or check-out system. They're all freely available to the team because we want people to take books. So we buy books whenever we need them. We don't worry about people taking them home and not bringing them back. Uh, we want them to read the books. Um, do you have any like private enclaves or meeting rooms or anything like we that? We do. Yeah, we have. So if people uh, need to take a phone call or. Yep, absolutely. Okay. Uh, we have a delightful, very private little room with a locking door and kind of soundproofing because one of the um, features of our culture, which uh, gets a lot of attention, is we let new parents bring their newborns to work for months at a time all day, every day. And so we have a place to take care of the newborns. Wow. That's yeah. another wow. Yes. Yeah, we've had 20, where uh, Anna is one week away from delivering Menlo baby number 21 in the last 10 years. Can you tell me about somebody or about a customer that came to you looking for help in changing how they worked and and just a a really tangible example of something that you helped help them change? (laughs) Yeah, my my favorite story along these lines occurred at Mass Mutual Corporation. Uh, It's a 169-year-old insurance company in northern Massachusetts, and they had brought me in to speak to their group, to their leadership team. So I gave kind of a standard keynote. I, I talked about joy. I talked about the purpose of joy. I talked about those two key questions mm-hmm. we talked about earlier. And when I got to the end, I gave them one strong encouragement. Uh, I had no idea how serious they were going to take this. But I told them, I said, I know how these conferences go. I come, others come, you have little side sessions. You get excited about something. You know, there's some idea you want to carry back. You want to bring it back to your office. But, of course, you're 200 people of a very large organization, and you go back to the office the next day, and you say, you know, you go up to the first person you meet, and I say, I have this great idea. And the person says, that won't work here. That's not us. HR won't approve or something like that. And usually right then and there, I told them, the idea dies. And they all agreed. I could see it in their eyes. Yep, that's what happens. And I said, I want to arm you with a simple response when that happens. Look them in the eye and say, I get it. But let's try something. Let's run the experiment. Experiment. Yes. It's less scary. It is less scary, right? In other words, let's not make a big change. Let's just run a little experiment. Let's see what happens. Maybe it won't work. Well, they invited me back six months later, and they were excited. They said, Rich, we want to show you what's happened. And I didn't know what to expect. But then Amy, their VP of claims, which is kind of the big deal department in Mm -hmm. a life insurance company, brought me down this marbled corridor and she said, Rich, when we get there, watch for helium balloons. Hmm. And I said, helium balloons? What do you mean? She goes, well, what you're going to see when we walk into the claim space, it's a big area inside of a company that, uh, you know, makes $30 billion a year as an insurance company. Claims processing is the big deal part of a life insurance company. And she said, you're going to see helium balloons taped to people's desks. I said, okay, what's the story with that? She said, every desk that has a helium balloon taped to it that you'll see 
is someone running an experiment and the balloon is there because they're inviting the conversation. They want you to come up and ask them about the experiment. Oh, how cool. Yeah. And so we turn the corner and I walk into this claims processing area, which in my mind's eye, it was about 100,000 square feet of, <laughs> you know, as far as the eye could see, uh, low high cue balls. There were balloons everywhere. Oh, I can picture that. Oh That's my so gosh, cool. it was just amazing. So, so I walk right up to Erica and I said to Erica, I said, Erica, I see you have a balloon. What experiment are you running? And she said, Well, Rich, um, she said, uh, I thought that we take on average about four weeks to pay a claim. I thought we could handle simple claims faster. Simple claims might be single beneficiary, clearly paid up policy, easily identified beneficiary. She just I thought she thought I thought we could change our process to take care of the simple cases a lot faster. And I said, okay, so average of four weeks, what's your record in handling these simple cases? She said 13 minutes. Get out. Yeah. I'm like, holy cow, congratulations. I said, that's awesome that you were able to do that. And she goes, oh, no, Rich, it wasn't me. It's was all these people around me that made that happen. And I just, in that moment, I saw the birth of a joyful leader uh, simply enabled by an experiment that she chose to run and that she could do it herself. She could get this move through the system a lot faster. And they had so many experiments like that going on. There was another woman I talked to who was just so excited to tell me about her experiment. And I, I said, boy, uh, you know, you seem so happy to be here. Uh, how long have you worked here? She said, 19 years. I said, have you always been like this? She goes, oh, no. She says, in the past, you know, I didn't really like coming to work. Uh. And I said, well, what's different now? She goes, now, with this let's run the experiment philosophy, says, I can make a decision. In the old days, I used to have to go up five levels, over, mm -hmm. down five levels. The idea would usually die in the vine. Three ideas die in the vine. You just never bring them up anymore. And, and so when I saw that kind of mentality take hold, that kind of new mindset take hold in an organization of that size, uh, I challenge any organization, no matter how big or how old, don't tell me you can't do it. If they can do it, mm -hmm. you can do it. That's a great story. And, and it speaks to purpose, right? Because yeah. purpose isn't, it, it doesn't always have to be sort of this altruistic goal. It, it really, for a lot of people, it's feeling like they can have an impact Absolutely. on the place that they yeah. work. You know, I think the thing that thrills anybody at work is the ability to go to work and get meaningful things done. Feel like you you yep. value. You know, not go home and say, oh, I'm so busy. <laughs> You're like, really? Did you get a lot done today? Well, no, I didn't actually get anything done today, but boy, was I busy. I went to a lot of meetings, answered a lot of phone calls, got a ton of emails. In fact, I'll be doing emails till midnight tonight. But you don't feel that sense of accomplishment. You don't feel like you got anywhere. You feel like you're on that treadmill. So I know you've been working on a new book. Can you give us a feel for what we're going to learn in that book? So the first one was Joy, Inc. And now this is an expansion of a chapter in Joy, Inc., uh, that was called Growing Leaders, Not Bosses. We have this unusual non-hierarchical model. We don't actually have any bosses at Menlo. The world is intrigued with that. The non-hierarchical part, I, I encourage people to not get too hung up on. I'm not telling any organization you should tear down your hierarchy. But what I tell them is focus on developing leaders, not bosses. Bosses, you know, have hierarchical authority and power. They can tell people what to do, and those people have to follow regardless of whether they believe or not. Leaders use powerful influence and get people to move with them because they believe in the leaders they're following. And so the book is an exploration of the core values of Menlo. How did we get to this place of trust that we could actually have a system that doesn't have bosses but simply has leaders? 
And so I go beyond the core values of Menlo as a company, and I look at the specific leadership values. And when you have those leadership values, what are the five things you have to do as a leader? Uh, You might be delighted to know that the first thing you have to do is start with purpose. Mm. And uh, so I talk a lot about purpose. I talk about building a learning organization. I talk about systems thinking. Joyful leaders are actually systems thinkers. And I talk about the servant leader component. How do we serve others in everything that we're doing? Well, I loved Joy Inc. and I look forward to reading that one. Thank you so much for being here. It's been really a pleasure to, to listen to how you work at Menlo. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Rich Sheridan, CEO and co-founder of Menlo Innovations and author of Joy Inc. If you enjoyed this conversation, we'd love it if you'd leave us an iTunes review to make 360 real-time podcasts easier to find. We also invite you to learn more about how the physical environment can support innovation and agile work at 360.steelcase.com. And you can hear more great podcasts like this one at 360.steelcase.com or on Apple Podcasts.